Hi, this is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff. The podcast. You would do if you had nothing better to do. And we we have a confession to make that we originally... We? Well, okay, I... Okay, or we, because I should have noticed. Yeah, so this may be a day or two late, because the other night we started recording, <laughs> and we were about an hour into it, and then I realized we weren't recording, so that was like our just our practice, but it was good. <laughs> I was able to fix some stuff, and so here we are now. I have a very quick update. Do you have anything? No. All right. If you remember episode 77, you know, why are police killing black women mm. or whatever it was called? One of the women we talked about was Atiana Jefferson, a black woman in Fort Worth, Texas, who was up playing video games with her nephew who was staying overnight. And they had left the front door open or something. And one of the neighbors called the police because the front door was open. So he was concerned. He was worried maybe something had happened over there. The white police officer going around the house did not identify himself as police going around the outside. She's looking out the window and he shot her through the window. He claimed he said he was looking down the barrel of the gun, but I remember there was body cam. And the reason I haven't gone back to see everything is because this just happened right before we started recording. He was on trial. He was found guilty of manslaughter. They would not find him guilty of the murder charge that prosecutors wanted, but he will spend up to 20 years in prison. His name is Aaron Dean. I'll talk a little more about it next episode, but I wanted to just let people know, at least he was found guilty. I think lots of times juries, if they're unsure, but I think a lot of times juries say manslaughter, not because they think it actually meets the legal definition of manslaughter, but they're like, oh, we don't want this guy to go to prison for life or in Texas, maybe it's even the death penalty. I don't know. You know, so we'll give him manslaughter instead. It's like you know? a wishy-washy. Like a like some know. kind of compromise or whatever. Yes. So should I just start? Yes. By... Okay. My sources for this are an affidavit in the case, as well as the Spokane Washington Spokesman Review, which is the newspaper there. For everything else, I'll just name the source when I use it. Everybody's and the stories from this was drawn from the same stuff. The topic may sound familiar to some listeners who listened to episode 122.2, and then an update in episode 124. That said, if you have listened to those and remember them, this is all new, unfamiliar information. If you didn't listen to those, and why the hell not, you don't have to have listened to them to listen to this one. That said, I'm just going to start. Concord, New Hampshire detectives Garrett Lemoyne and Matt Doyen weren't sure what to make of Arthur Kelly, when they came upon his campsite in the woods near the Marsh Loop Trail off Route 9 in the Heights section of New Hampshire's capital city on April 20th, 2022. He was a slightly built, unassuming white guy in his early 20s, well-kept and clean-cut, but still obviously had the air of someone who was living rough. Other than that, he didn't make much of an impression as he popped his head out of his tent to talk to them. In fact, the biggest impression was made by the many cans of Mountain Dew Code Red scattered around the tent site the detectives asked his name and he told them it was arthur kelly what's code red i think is it's it just high a, caffeine I, I think it's just a flavor of mountain dew oh, i was okay. gonna look it up but it does play a part in the story which is why i mention it you know that and stuff like what's that what red bull and all that shit yeah they they just annoy me so i i'm sorry so i the detectives asked his name and he told them it was arthur kelly it's not clear if they asked for an id But if they had, he would have been able to show them a Vermont driver's license with that name on it. After the brief encounter, they went on their way. After all, they weren't looking for an unassuming white guy. They were looking for Stephen and Deswende Reed, 
who'd been reported missing by their adult children earlier that day. Does Wendy, who went by Wendy, was 66, Steve was 67, and they lived in the Alton Woods apartment complex nearby, went for walks in the broken ground trail system several times a week. I won't call them hikes because basically it's just trails through the woods in the northeast section of the city. The city owns some woodsy land there and there are some trails. The Reeds would have accessed the trails from a path from their 400-unit apartment complex on Loudoun Road in Concord. They would have walked on their Interstate 393 to Portsmouth Road, a dead-end residential street, then to the Marsh Loop Trail, which was the trail nearest their apartment and where they walked the most often. Marsh Loop is rated easy, and trail descriptions urge hikers to keep an eye out for great blue heron, beavers, and other wildlife. Concord has a population of 44,000. And like most of northern New England cities, it doesn't take long before you're out of the city and into the woods. Wendy and Steve, both retired from jobs that had brought them around the world, were physically active and enjoyed exercise and adventure. They enjoyed the nature around Steve's hometown of Concord, New Hampshire, and they also liked being near their kids and grandkids who lived in the area. Oh. Wendy was raised in Togo in Western Africa, and both of her parents were from Burkina Faso, a nearby country. It would have been easy for her to feel out of place in mostly white New Hampshire, but if she did, she didn't let it show, according to accounts from friends. Concord itself is a little more diverse than the rest of the state, with 88% of its population white and 3% black. The other percentages are Asian, Latin American, and other things. The entire state is 95% white with a 1.55% black population. Though I can imagine if you're a person of color, that small difference isn't going to feel like much. While there have been reports of hate crimes in the area, the usual vandalism and nastiness, something on the rise across the U.S. in recent years, Mm -hmm. the Reeds didn't seem to be targets for being in a biracial marriage. Monday, April 18th, was a holiday in neighboring Massachusetts and Maine, Patriots Day, which commemorates the Battle of Lexington and Concord in 1775, the first battle of the Revolutionary War. Nowadays, it's mostly notable as the day the Boston Marathon is run, as well Mm -hmm. as being the first day of April school vacation in Massachusetts and Maine. In New Hampshire, though, it was just another April Monday, a sunny, dry one, unusual for what's known around here as mud season. Steve and Wendy both talked on the phone to various friends and family during the early part of the day, some of whom they'd seen the day before, which was Easter. A little before 2.30, they left their apartment and walked across the parking lot to the broken ground trail system. When family members couldn't get in touch the next day, Tuesday, they thought it was odd. Wendy and Steve always called back. When Steve missed a standing tennis day on Tuesday and didn't call to cancel or let his friend know he wasn't going to show up, it raised alarms. On the morning of Wednesday, April 20th, the couple's family reported them missing to the Concord Police Department. Police started out searching around the Loudoun Road, Concord Heights area, checking vehicle registrations, talking to people, and that kind of thing. Loudoun Road is one of those strips you get in northern New England small cities and probably small cities in rural areas all over the country. It has state offices, hotels, malls, fast food restaurants, sprawling apartment complexes, gas stations, and other stuff. But like I said, two blocks away, there's nothing but woods and hills until the next town. The search quickly shifted to the broken ground trail area, where, as I said, the reeds were known to frequently walk. That's when Concord police detectives Lemoyne and Doyen ran into Arthur Kelly. After about 90 minutes, the police called in the fire department since they had ATVs, which could cover more ground faster and also go off-road. They also called in the New Hampshire Fish and Game Department and the state police. 
On Thursday, April 21st, the bodies of Wendy and Steve Reed were found in the woods about 50 yards off Marsh Loop Trail. Police kept the details to themselves at the time, but they'd found blood and bullet fragments on the trail and signs the couple had been dragged into the woods. State medical examiner Jenny Duval ruled the manner of death was double homicide and cause was multiple gunshot wounds. After the bodies were found, investigators spent several days in the woods focusing on an area near the power lines and an electric company substation a little less than half a mile from Portsmouth Street where the trail began. Dog units, including one from Hillsborough County Sheriff's Department, helped out. One dog, Nico, was specially trained to search for electronics, storage devices, including hard drives, SD cards, hidden cameras with storage devices, and cell phones. Oh, dogs are so smart. Right, and that's according to a Concord Patch story. Investigators, of course, also looked around for Arthur Kelly, but he was gone. It's a little confusing, and I'll get into it more later, but it's not clear if two detectives who talked to him April 20th talked to him at his campsite in the woods or ran into him on the trail. In my earlier narrative, I said it was in the woods because there's a later reference to them seeing him in his tent. But then other accounts have that they ran into him on the trail, and I'll talk more about that later. They did see the Mountain Dew cans. I'm guessing the reference that they saw them strewn around is correct. It is confusing, and I'll try to be clear when I talk about it again later. In any case, on April 22nd, the day after the bodies were found, Detectives went back to Arthur Kelly's campsite to find he'd gone and taken most of his belongings with him. Detective Wade Brown ran his name through databases, but couldn't find anything relevant to the guy that they'd run into in the woods. The police aren't the only ones who'd run into Arthur Kelly in the past few days in the woods. At the same time, Steve and Wendy crossed under Interstate 393 onto Portsmouth Road and made their way to the trailhead. A woman, whose name police haven't released, was also heading to the trail with her two dogs. The trail begins on a cleared area under the power lines. You know how they have those big swaths and there are frequently ATV trails and hiking trails and stuff along those. And she was in that area. And as she walked, Steve and Wendy caught up to her. They were moving a lot faster than she was. So she moved aside and got her dogs out of the way to let them pass. And lots of times, even though those areas are clear and I haven't seen this one, there is brush like knee high and stuff brush. It's not like mowed grass or anything. About five or 10 minutes later, and anyone who's walked a dog or especially two dogs knows how long it can take (laughs) to even go a short distance. After she'd entered the part of the trail that was in the woods, she heard five gunshots that she believed were from a handgun, not a rifle. She and her dogs were startled and she was hesitant to keep going. But ultimately, she did. And for people who are thinking, what the hell? You know, why go into the woods when you hear gunshots? I'll just say that it's not uncommon in New Hampshire or Maine to hear gunshots, even if it's not hunting season. People are allowed to practice shoot on their property. There are gun ranges around, and a lot of people have guns. In fact, one day a few years ago, when I was driving down Route 27 toward Augusta, something hit my windshield and I'm used to rocks hitting my windshield. It seems to happen a lot with my cars, (laughs) but this was a harder hit and it made a little indentation in the windshield, which usually doesn't happen with a rock. And the trajectory was different. And also there was not a car or truck going by me at the time that would have kicked up a rock. I even pulled in to what was then the North End Damon's, <laughs> walked back to look along the shoulder to see if I could find whatever had hit the windshield. I was that curious, but I couldn't find anything. When I brought the windshield in to be replaced, the guy said, whoa, who shot at you? That's a gunshot, which I'd already thought, but I wasn't sure. And I'm like, wow, 
that was scary in retrospect. <laughs> yeah. But, but anyway, a few minutes after the dog walker heard the gunshots, she saw a young man standing on the trail ahead of her looking into the woods. He stood there looking into the woods, then back at her, then into the woods as she continued to walk toward him. Uh. He then started walking, walking toward her on the trail, passing her without saying anything. After a few steps, she turned and looked back and saw he was looking back at her. She turned around and kept going. I would love to know the breed of her dogs, because if I had German Shepherds or something, yeah, maybe I would have continued the walk, but Pugs or Pomeranians or even Corgis, not so much. Though I also wouldn't want to go back in the same direction he did either. I guess I'd figure as long as I was walking opposite direction he was i was okay and you know who knows what she was thinking i know i'd be a little bit maybe someday we'll find out police determined that the place the guy was standing when she saw him was the same spot where they believe the shooting took place where they'd found the bullet fragments and blood and i can see her not noticing anything like that considering she was rattled by the guy and not paying attention or looking for that type of thing now just because i hate police jargon so much i'm going to quote (laughs) from an affidavit i got a lot of this information from the witness advised that she did not see any firearms or related objects to explain the shot she heard nor did she see anything out of the ordinary in the woods where the male was looking (laughs) the witness stated that the male seemed out of place and not like a typical hiker (laughs) Um, and also i know i'm breaking up the narrative but i hate how the police say advised instead of told or said i don't know why they started doing that it's such an unnecessary violation of the English language, and it drives me fucking insane. And what I hate even more is when reporters use it instead of using proper English. Yes. Now that we have that out of the way. Okay. The woman described the guy as a white male, late 20s or early 30s, about 5 foot 10 with a slender build, short brown hair, clean shaven, and he gave the appearance of a, quote, street person mm. or homeless She said he was dressed casually, like he's going to be wearing a tuxedo in the woods. (laughs) She said he was wearing a dark blue jacket or hoodie, khakis, a black backpack, carried a brown plastic, what we would call single-use grocery bag, which appeared full of items and appeared heavy. And she saw a circular object that appeared to protrude through the plastic that reminded her of a can Mm. or a jar. Hmm, Could it have been Mountain Dew? Mountain Dew. Code red. The police later checked her phone GPS and along with her account determined that the timeline was her hike started at 2.48 p.m. The reeds passed her at about 2.50 p.m. She entered the wooden section of the trail at 2.54 p.m. and heard the gunshots. She arrived at the shooting scene at 2.59 p.m. The police figured that gave the killer about five minutes to shoot the reeds and move the bodies. Plenty of time, I say. The affidavit points out, despite widespread media attention, public awareness, and investigative follow-up, no suspects were identified in the first few weeks of the investigation. I'm going to interrupt myself here to say that it sounds like there's a little public blaming there. Maybe I'm reading that wrong. When the cops are the ones who were in possession of the information and weren't releasing it publicly or to the media, despite the, quote, widespread media attention, police were saying very little. And as you'll hear in a little while, there were things that they could have been more on top of. The investigation involved Conquer Police Department with an assist from the New Hampshire Attorney General's Office, New Hampshire State Police, the New Hampshire Fish and Game Department, and the FBI. 
when we first talked about this in episode 122.2, it had only happened a couple weeks before, and I pointed out that little had been said publicly about the investigation aside from pleas by law enforcement for information. In the days after the bodies were found, New Hampshire Associate Attorney General Jeff Strelson said, in criminal investigations, authorities are circumspect in the details mm. because we are limited by rules of professional conduct and the requirements to protect the integrity of the investigation. So in other words, we don't want to screw things up by telling you people every little thing. Mm. So I'm saying, so don't kind of blame despite the widespread media attention thing, because it doesn't matter if there's widespread media attention when the media doesn't have any information. And as you'll find out, the public actually was more help than the cops realized in the days after the shooting, as well as in the days before it. Hmm. Another thing, shortly after the Reed's bodies were found, Senior Assistant Attorney General Jeffrey Ward, it's spelled with a G, so I always want to say Geoffrey, Geoffrey. said that while area residents should be vigilant, police didn't have reason to suspect that the public is in danger. Mm. As we've talked about before and we'll discuss <sighs> later, <laughs> How can they know that when two people who did not live high-risk lives were gunned down in broad daylight while out for a walk in the woods and the cops have no clue who did it, how can they know no one's in danger? I know. I said it in May. You said it in May. We talked extensively about it then. We both have an issue with this when the cops don't know who did it. It's the same issue in that University of Idaho quadruple murder, which the police later had to reel back that statement and admit, yeah, um, we don't know. Maybe the public is in danger since some psycho killed four college kids and we don't know who it was yeah it's been a bugaboo for the two of us for a long time i'm glad the rest of the world is hearing about it and well because they all listen to us too right law enforcement and criminal justice experts did point out the reed murders were ones that showed anger and maliciousness and that Hmm. type of thing i assume because the multiple gunshots and the fact that it was during the day The words monster and evil were used liberally, Mm. which is another one of my many peeves. I know I have a lot (sighs) of them, but I feel like when you use, oh, a monster did this. Oh, this is pure evil and that type of thing. Mm. You're saying people who do this are somehow different. They're not human. And until we accept that people we see as human beings who could be your neighbor, your nephew, a teacher at your school, or the unassuming kid with the backpack in the woods, They can shoot the living shit out of another human being just because they feel entitled to. And until we recognize that, we're not going to start changing things. The things they do are evil, possibly, Mm -hmm. although I feel like that's like a religious reference, monstrous. Mm. But if they were really evil or monsters, they never would have had the opportunity to be in the position to kill somebody and commit the evil, monstrous crimes, as you'll see with this. People get a pass, they get a pass, they get a pass, they get a pass until they do something. And then all of a sudden they're an evil monster. Doing that just oversimplifies something that's more complex. Yes. For you don't have to worry about about other people that aren't supposedly evil. Laura Dykstra, an associate professor of criminology and criminal justice at New Hampshire's Plymouth State University, told the Concord Monitor, typically when you're investigating homicides, you look first at people who are known to the victims. It's relatively rare to have stranger homicides occur in New Hampshire. She also pointed out that if it is a stranger homicide, it's more likely to not be solved. Oh. If they don't have any ties to the person and they didn't like write on a tree, I did this, you can contact me at blah, blah, blah. Jeff Sarnak, an associate dean of criminal justice and social sciences at Southern New Hampshire University and Hooksett 
New Hampshire, even though they want to say it's in Manchester, they're not, they're in Hooksit. Mm. I'm just saying, told Channel 9 in Manchester that the homicide raises a lot of eyebrows. There's a lot of malice. There's just level of intent and evil there. Oh, jeez. Okay. Early theories were some connection to Steve's work for USAID, a humanitarian group that helps with development in third world countries. And my feeling at the time when we first talked about this was since it was humanitarian aid that didn't seem likely to me especially since it happened in concord and not in some of the places he'd been stationed like haiti or africa people talked about a racial motive wendy was black and steve was white which could have spurred someone's anger or hostility their son and daughter Lindsay and brian told the media after the killings they believed there was a racial motive Mm-hmm. And of course, there was the internet world's favorite theory, serial killer. Mm. And as always, I want to point out that a random killing by a crazy person doesn't necessarily mean it's a serial killer. A killing can still be random without being a serial killer, which people don't seem to get. They think if it's a random killing, it's a serial. You know what I mean? I just see it yes. all the time. My favorite theory back in May, and please note this as we go on with the episode, is that it was a jackass with a gun. In fact, I'll quote myself from our May episode, quote, there are a lot of them in New Hampshire, jackasses with with guns. It could be someone who was out looking for something to shoot and saw Wendy and Steve. I'm not trying to be glib about it. I just think that's as likely as any other theory, end quote. Mm -hmm. Just keep that in mind. At a June press conference, Assistant AG Jeffrey Ward wouldn't comment or answer questions on whether the crime was random or the reeds were targeted, the make of the gun, where along the trail the bodies were found, why a May 17th composite sketch that they issued to the public was only a profile, whether the guy in the sketch who police described as a person of interest they wanted to talk to was in the area, whether he was armed and dangerous, whether anyone had reported gunshots, or what the other tips were from residents and what those residents may have seen or heard. He wouldn't comment on any of those questions. He said, that's something to protect the integrity of the investigation. Mm. What that means is, at this stage, it's important that there is information that is only known to investigators and the killer. That allows us to consider the credibility and evaluate the credibility of information that comes in and prevent any witness tampering that may occur. As mm-hmm. far as the May 17th composite sketch goes, it was created by an FBI sketch artist and presumably based on info provided by the dog walker, though they never have said that And they never did say why it was only a profile and not full on because presumably she saw his face full on at some point if he was walking toward her. Assistant A.G. Ward at the June press conference says the cops, quote, subsequently received dozens of tips from citizens on the composite, but none resulted in the positive identification of the male. Speaking of the male, let's go go back to Arthur Kelly. You know, the guy the cops saw two days after the reeds disappeared and the day before they found the bodies. The guy with the Mountain Dew code red. We know how smart our listeners are, so a lot of you have probably figured out that Arthur Kelly wasn't his real name. Who was this man then? And this man was <laughs> me. me. No, Logan Clegg was born January 24th, 1996 in Tempe, Arizona, the son of LeVar and Tisha Clegg. When he was three, the family moved to Colville, Washington, a town of about 4,700 people in the northwest corner of the state, about an hour north of Spokane. They had relatives there. 
Clegg's preteen years were filled with things like Guitar Hero and Star Wars, trampolines, and home run derbies, according to the Boston Globe, which interviewed nine people who knew him growing up. He played trombone in band class in middle school, and that's where most of his friends were from. He also struggled socially and was, according to some who knew him, painfully shy. Well, I could describe a yearbook photo from his school days, I'll let Boston Globe reporters Hannah Kruger and Dugan Arnett do it. <laughs> the school photos show Clegg with wire oval glasses and a mop of auburn hair crudely cut across his forehead. His close-lipped grin reveals a dimple on the left cheek, and his right eyebrow arches slightly upward, as if he's straining to be happy. His shirt seems a size too big and drapes over a hunched and bony frame, unquote. One bandmate, Shelby Naylor, told the Globe, if you talked to him, his face would turn very, very red, and you couldn't hear his responses because he spoke very quietly and mumbled. Noah Baum said, he had a really funny sense of humor. He was just very selective about who he actually talked to. Hmm. On July 24, 2008, when Logan was 12, he found the body of his father, Randy, 38, who died by suicide in their Colville backyard. A neighbor and at the time, a good friend of Logan's, who shared a locker with him at school, said he rarely saw Logan after that. He was never the same. One time he slammed the door on us and basically said, I want you to leave me alone. I don't want to hang out anymore. People who knew him at the time referred to him as a ghost, a word the Boston Globe article said came up constantly in their interviews. He did continue to go to school, attending through February of his senior year in high school before he dropped out. He earned a GED and attended community college in Spokane. When he returned to his hometown, he camped out under the grandstand at the Stevens County Fairground instead of living with his mother, Tisha, or other family. It was here that an early red flag regarding what was underneath Clegg's quiet exterior waved high. In February 2017, when Clegg was 21 and living under the grandstand, a fairgrounds employee moved his belongings to a storage area. Clegg stormed into her office, angrily demanding his stuff back. The woman was unsettled enough by it to call the police, and Clegg tried to grab the phone out of her hand as he did. It's not clear if he was charged or what else happened with this. The only place I could find it was in the Boston Globe, and while they attributed it to police records, I couldn't find any references or other information. Is it legal to just, like, camp? anywhere that you want like, no but i mean people do and then they I get know. their trespassing and they, they get kicked off and yeah. you know later in 2017 he began working at mcdonald's in spokane as a night custodian he was a good worker who drank a lot of mountain dew his assistant manager recalled he never called in sick and was always on time despite the fact as he told assistant manager Brian peterson he lived outdoors about two miles away she said he never complained when he was given extra work and always made a point to say hi when he arrived for the night. It's just one of those things that you could like consistently count on every night when walking in and like, you know, no one wants to come to work. No one wants to be there. And still he cared about the pleasantries, she told the Globe. Another nighttime worker in Spokane was Corey A. Ward. Ward, 28, was a cook at the Menito Tap House, described in the Spokesman Review, Spokane's newspaper, as a popular pub and restaurant in the South Hill neighborhood of the city. Ward was described by co-workers as bright and friendly. His heart was always in the right place, co-worker Jared Grubb told the Spokesman Review. He liked sports, especially snowboarding and high school football, 
and just about any other sport. He'd attended Medical Lake High School in Spokane, but apparently hadn't graduated. He'd had some rough patches, particularly drug addiction, but had worked to overcome it and by the spring of 2018 had been sober for three years. Corey had been working at the Tap House for about a year, around the same amount of time Logan Clegg had been working at McDonald's in Spokane. Corey's mother described him as polite, always calling people sir or ma'am and holding the door for people. He was positive, always striving to be a role model, and had a great laugh. He was also a gentle, nonviolent person who cared about his friends. He lived in an apartment on North Nettleton Street with his cat, who he loved as though it was his child. He would leave the TV on with Sports Center playing when he went to work so his cat wouldn't get lonely. Aww. And they don't have the name of the cat in the story. <sighs> He was a gentle laid back person, but had been a little agitated recently because his car had been stolen twice from where he parked it outside the apartment complex. His mother, Lisa Ward, said aside from his cat, he also loved his girlfriend, Tia Seeger, and treated her well. His girlfriend, Tia, said he had a bond with his mother that was like the kind she hoped to have when she eventually had children. Uh-huh. That all came to an end May 17th, 2018, when Corey Ward's path crossed with Logan Cleggs. Mm-hmm. At around 11.38 p.m. that Thursday night, a night off from work for Corey, a neighbor called 911 and said Corey, dressed only in shorts and tennis shoes, was lying on the grass on Northwest Boulevard outside the apartment complex, bleeding. The neighbor said Corey said he'd been fighting with a guy who'd stabbed him in the heart. Two people driving by on Northwest Boulevard also saw Corey lying in the grass and called 911. Maybe Corey was able to talk to the neighbor, but by the time police and the ambulance got there at 1145, he was unresponsive and bleeding profusely. Mm. He had lacerations to his left arm, jaw, chest, and back. They tried to help him, but he was too badly hurt. He was pronounced dead at 1208 a.m. Police followed a trail of blood from where Corey Ward had been lying in the grass about a block north where they found a pool of blood, a knife sheath, and a cell phone. They surmised the attack had happened there, and then Corey had tried to get back home. From that intersection, a smaller trail of blood went north. They followed that too, but eventually lost the trail. Logan Clegg showed up to work at the Shadel Center McDonald's, about a mile north of where Corey Ward was attacked, a few minutes late that night, the first time he had ever been late in the year he'd worked there. Mm-hmm. He had a bad cut on his hand and blood in his hair from a scalp laceration. <sighs> he was pale and shaking. He wanted to work, but Brianna Peterson, the assistant manager, insisted on driving him to the hospital, fighting the urge to faint at the sight of his condition. On the way, she called 911. Police interviewed Clegg at the hospital, where he told his story. Keep in mind, Corey Ward isn't alive to tell his version of things. Logan Clegg said he'd been walking to work, and when he turned onto Nettleton Street from Northwest Boulevard, someone shouted at him from a window in an apartment house. Clegg said he'd shouted something in response. If he said what it was, the newspaper doesn't say, and Hmm. I don't know if the police didn't know, if the police didn't tell them, if they didn't, I don't know what it was. He said he kept walking after he shouted, but before he knew it, this guy had run up behind him and indicated he wanted to fight, saying, I'm here, let's go. Clegg pulled a knife from his front pocket because at five foot nine and 145 pounds, he knew he'd be overpowered by Corey, who was six foot and 230 pounds. Clegg said Ward began punching him and knocked him to the ground and got on top of him and kept punching him. Clegg stabbed Ward in the stomach and chest in self-defense, he said. He said Ward eventually got up and began walking back to the apartment house, so Clegg didn't think he was hurt badly. He got up, 
brushed himself off and went to McDonald's because he'd lost his cell phone and didn't know what else to do. Logan Clegg said he'd never seen Corey Ward before in his life. People at the scene said Corey, before he lost consciousness, said he had no idea who Clegg was. No one actually saw the fight, though neighbors said they heard shouts that they remembered as, hey, come here, help me, and just let me go. Police checked out Corey's apartment and found that it looked as though he'd been in bed before the attack. The window facing the street was open, which matched Clegg's story. A detective also noted, quote, that the inside smelled of burning marijuana. Logan Clegg had no criminal record, which tells me that whatever happened with his fairgrounds belongings and him threatening the person calling the police and stuff there were no Nothing charges came of it yeah because he would have had a criminal record yeah it's interesting that the globe found police records because usually if you're not charged with something there aren't i looked a lot to see if i could find that but anyway he allowed police to access his cell phone the one they'd found at the scene he looked small and scared to the police they were huh. inclined to believe him that he'd been attacked by a big angry guy was scared shitless and stabbed him to defend himself But you know who didn't believe him? Corey's mother and girlfriend. Uh They both said that they believed an argument started while Corey was in the window. We both know that Corey would never have left his apartment when he'd been asleep for no reason, his mother told the Spokane newspaper after her son died. He would not have gotten out of bed to beat someone up for no reason. He was not a violent person. She said she didn't think Clegg killed Corey on purpose, but it was a misunderstanding that escalated and that Logan Clegg should be held accountable. Four years later, she elaborated to the Boston Globe. Police were saying, Corey was the aggressor. My son was a lot of things. He was a hardworking kid, but when he wasn't working, like for his job, he was as lazy as the day is long. He would have never come out of his apartment, run down two flights of stairs just to start a fight. That's not my son. She also recently told Nancy West of In-Depth NH, a digital news outlet in New Hampshire, that after Mm -hmm. Corey died, she found out he'd fathered a child who she's now raising. The investigation dragged on with no charges being brought against Clegg. On June 26, 2018, more than a month after Corey Ward's death, the Spokesman Review reported that police said they were still trying to find evidence that would result in charges against Clegg. Brianna Peterson, the McDonald's manager, said that at the time she believed Clegg, that he seemed like a scared and vulnerable kid. After that happened, he became super skittish. Something would fall and he'd nearly jump out of his pants. He was broken in a way, she said. Who knows what happens to a person after what he went through? This is another frustrating instance when the stories, at least what I can find on newspapers.com, suddenly stop. Mm. Apparently in 2019, police decided not to charge Logan Clegg. I know this because a TV station had a July 2019 note on a story from June 2018 about the stabbing, saying they'd removed the suspect's name since he wasn't charged. So I think it must have happened in sometime in 2019, or that's when the TV station found out about it. I don't know. It didn't matter anyway. By then, Clegg was long gone. Brianna Peterson, the McDonald's manager, said a few weeks after he killed Corey Ward, Clegg didn't show up for work, and she never saw him again. We pick up Logan's trail October 23, 2019, when he flew from Denver, Colorado to Paris, and that's France, not Paris, Maine, which I or don't Texas. Believe, right, and I don't believe Paris, Maine even has an airport, you know, <laughs> not even a little landing strip. I don't know about Paris, Texas. He returned November 3rd and landed in Las Vegas. 
The Boston Globe asked Clegg's Washington acquaintances about his propensity for, for European travel. It will turn out this isn't the only trip he took overseas between 2019 and 2021. But his friends, his former friends, were baffled, saying no one in Colville ever even left the state most of the time. One neighborhood friend, though, the one who said Clegg all but ghosted him after his father died, said maybe the travel gave Clegg the anonymity he seemed to want. That's the only way it would make sense to me. He wanted to be so far away where he couldn't communicate with anybody, he said. Clegg didn't spend all his time in Europe, though. After he returned in November 2019, he made his way to Utah, landing in Logan, Utah, a city of about 52,000, about 80 miles north of Salt Lake City. It's in a high mountain valley, about 4,000 feet above sea level, and is known for outdoor recreation. On July 23, 2020, Clegg broke into Al's Sporting Goods in Logan, Utah, using a pry bar and stole two handguns. An alarm went off, but by the time police got there, he was gone. Police told the Herald Journal, the local newspaper, that it appeared the handguns were specifically targeted in the burglary. At the time, Clegg was living right across the street from the Logan Police Department in an abandoned building, a former radiator shop. The Globe says the police station's wall-to-wall windows looked straight out at the building Clegg was squatting in. I went on Google Street View. I don't know when the image was taken, and I went like all the way around the building. It's a huge Mm -hmm. police station, a largely residential area. There's a couple buildings that could be abandoned but it's not like small town where you know it's the only thing over there and you're gonna know but he was living in an abandoned building across Mm. from the police station about two weeks after he stole the guns on august 10th 2020 clegg was caught shoplifting at a walmart in salt lake city which again is about 80 miles south of logan he had one of the stolen handguns a cz 75B 45 caliber tucked into his waistband, loaded. He told police he needed it for self-defense. At the time, Utah law was that you could carry a concealed gun if you had a permit. If you were from out of state, you needed to get an out-of-state permit. I don't know a ton about guns, but I do know you're not supposed to be carrying it around loaded. The police confiscated the gun, but he wasn't charged with any offenses related to it, even though he was carrying it illegally without a permit. They charged him for shoplifting a misdemeanor and sent him on his way. On August 29th, he was found sleeping in the abandoned building after another nearby burglary in Logan. It looks like he wasn't too scared off by the police to commit a burglary right near the police station, and he tried to flee the police and got caught. They found his passport tucked beneath the cushions of the old couch he slept on, which, according to the Globe, was filled with stamps from European countries. And I want to say, even if he had traveled to Europe a couple times, his passport would not be filled with stamps. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It would yes. have some in it. But um, Do you get stamps from different countries? If you do. Every time European you enter a country, Union? every time you, not in the European Union, but every time, I don't think, but every time you enter a different country, unless you take the ferry from Dublin to Wales, and you know, Wales is no longer in the European Union because it's part of England, because they're so laid back when we did that we got there to holyhead wales and there was nobody in the security booth and i said aren't we supposed to show someone our passport and there was somebody working there and they said oh, don't worry about it only with the wealth <laughs> we're like yeah okay there were also pilfered wallets and purses the boston globe article said whose spoils sustained his lifestyle He had a loaded handgun this time, too, a nine millimeter that was in his backpack and was the second one stolen from Uh Al's sporting goods. It was seized and is still in custody as evidence. 
He didn't like the fact that he felt three police ganged up on him when they chased him down. He told them that three-on-one was unfair, that he wished he had a chance to pull the gun out and fight one-on-one, which he'd do because he would rather die than fucking go to prison. Police also found Lockett- Lockett, he's white. Yeah, yeah, he'd be dead. He would have been dead a long time ago. Police also found lockpicks in his backpack, and Clegg told him that he had them because he had a friend in Europe who was a locksmith and offered him a job as an apprentice. And I just want to say something, too, that I, I notice frequently. When people say in Europe, wouldn't you say I have a friend in Germany or I have a friend in France? Would you say Europe? No, I would say the country. Right. With that arrest, the Logan police connected the gun to the burglary a month before, something the Salt Lake City police hadn't apparently done when he shoplifted at the Walmart 19 days before. I know the two cities are 80 miles apart, but you'd think there'd be some kind of law enforcement database for stolen guns. One would think so. Yeah, I guess I just live in some kind of Pollyanna dream world where people give a shit about, you know. Yeah. Logan Clegg served four days in a local jail before being released on bail. Now, November 9th, 2020, was sentenced to 36 months of probation for charges of failure to stop at command of law enforcement, a class A misdemeanor, theft by receiving stolen property, a third degree felony, burglary, a third degree felony, and theft, a third degree felony. He was not charged with illegally carrying a concealed weapon, even though he was caught doing it twice. That should give anyone pause. Gun laws are only as good as their enforcement, but no one seemed to care that he burgled a sporting goods store with the goal of stealing guns, according to the police stole two and walked around with them loaded and threatened the police with one. I know. What do you fucking have to do to get charged? As part of his probation sentence, he signed an agreement to obey all state, federal, and municipal laws, not to possess any firearms or dangerous weapons, and not to abscond from probation supervision. Maybe the judge didn't care that not only did he have a passport full of stamps from European countries and also said he had a job waiting for him in Europe with lockpicks to prove it, and he was obviously transient, or maybe the judge just figured he would take off and he'd be somebody else's problem. But anyway, Clegg being Clegg, he didn't stick around. On June 21st, 2021, he flew from Chicago to Lisbon, Portugal. On July 21st, 2021, Utah issued an arrest warrant after he failed to report to his monthly probation meeting. He stayed out of the U.S. for 139 days, returning November 7th, 2021, on a Munich to Boston flight, which had a stopover in Reykjavik, Iceland. While there isn't any information available about Clegg's international travel, probably because no one knows what the hell he did over there, the Boston Globe points out that the visa most Americans use to travel around Europe is a Schengen visa, is only valid for 90 days within a 180-day period. So for that 139-day stay, to avoid overstaying his visa, he would have had to leave the Schengen zone for at least 49 days. The zone includes Portugal and Germany and countries like that. There are others it doesn't include, for instance, Romania. The story says that visa violations can result in fines running to hundreds of thousands of dollars, deportation, or a permanent ban from the Schengen (sighs) zone. It doesn't say, however, how strictly it's enforced. And not only does he not seem to give a shit about laws, he seems to have a talent for sliding out of trouble. After he landed in Boston on November 7th, 2021, he made his way up Interstate 93, as so many do. We've talked about this in a couple of other episodes, 
people see 93 North, New Hampshire, and figure, I'll just go there. We're remote. <laughs> and no one else in the country is even paying attention. I mean, Bernie Getz did it. That um, serial killer, Chris, I can't remember what his name was. Elaine Kala guy did too. Right. Well, he worked at a, he worked at a summer camp. I talk about it, I think in the Carl Draga episode. On November 9th, 2021, he created a Gmail address, rkxkelly at gmail.com, using the name Arthur Kelly as owner of the account. He used the email address the next day when he filled out an application at the Loudon Road McDonald's, though he used his real name, Logan Clegg, on the application. He didn't use the email address to get or send emails. He had no photos. There was no location history. He just used it for things he was required to have an email address for. He applied for and got several credit cards using the email address, and he got them under his real name, Logan Clegg. On November 19th, he worked his first shift as night custodian at the McDonald's on Loudoun Road in Concord, New Hampshire. On November 28th, he bought a four-person tent and a watch at the Concord Walmart, which is across Loudoun Road and just a little bit east of Alton Woods Apartments, where the Reeds lived and the Broken Ground Trails area. He settled in the woods near Broken Ground Trails, visiting Walmart and Shaw's Supermarket, which is down the street, and working at McDonald's. On December 8th and 9th, he bought vitamins and supplements from BulkSupplements.com using one of his new credit cards, and he had them shipped to the Walgreens on Loudoun Road, which is a FedEx pickup spot, and he signed for them and did that all in his own name, Logan Clegg. On February 6, 2022, he quit his McDonald's job, telling the manager he got a new job, but he didn't say where. He bought a one-way ticket to Reykjavik, Iceland. That would fly out of Newark, New Jersey, February 26, 2022. But apparently he changed his plans. On February 12th, he took a Greyhound bus to Montpelier, Vermont, a two-hour, 41-minute ride from Concord, New Hampshire. Hmm. When he got to Montpelier, he traveled the seven miles to Barrie, Vermont. In Barrie, he bought a Glock 17 hmm. and three boxes of Sig Sauer 9mm ammunition at RNL Archery, a gun and hunting shop. I know you're saying, how could he buy a gun? He had a criminal record. Well, he showed a Vermont driver's license with the name Arthur Kelly and his Utah felonies. And also now he, of course, he was a fugitive from Utah. were under the name Logan Clegg. Isn't he smart? There you go. Police found out later that the number on the license couldn't be confirmed, which by law should have meant a hold on the sale because that means it's likely a fake license. But somehow it didn't. Store owner Chris Sanborn later told the Boston Globe, that gentleman came into our store to buy a gun and provided an ID that we enter into the FBI's NCIS system. If there were any red flags that came up, we wouldn't have sold him the gun. And I still can't figure out why anybody calls crooks gentlemen. My uh, My guess is that police started doing it as a joke decades ago because they're funny like that. And since people like using police jargon whenever they talk about someone involved in a crime... They use it too. And that's my theory. I think it's ridiculous. Just like advised instead of said. Laura Richards. Add it to my list. Yeah, she does. And we think a lot alike. I love Laura. Anyway, for the second time in less than two years, gun laws being ignored allowed a very dangerous man to keep doing what he was doing and arm himself. Mm -hmm. Logan Clegg took his gun back down Interstate 89 to Concord, New Hampshire. And that's where he was that cold but sunny spring day. April 18th, 2022, when Wendy and Steve Reed went for a walk. I mentioned earlier that there was very little information released to the public, but that doesn't mean the police weren't busy 
The investigation, at least the information that's publicly available, has some head scratching, what the fucks, but it also is a great illustration of the kind of police work that leads to arrest. It's the drudgery minutia that ends up getting crooks. Remember how the criminal justice professor, Laura Dykstra, we should have that music like, you know, for a flashback, said if the Reeds were killed by a random shooter, these kind of crimes were very hard to solve. Many are never solved. And this one could have easily gone that way too. But let's take a look at why it didn't. Okay. It's not a perfect story, but it ends up being a successful one. You know, I like to be nasty about the police, but they worked very hard and used their noggins. And actually, I remember reading a story last summer that Concord police were putting them for all this overtime and it was busting the city's budget and stuff, but it paid off. Hindsight being 2020, it's easy to connect Arthur Kelly, the guy in the woods, with the shootings. But the police were looking at a lot of stuff, and my guess is they were focused on trying to find people who knew the reads or had a connection. I got most of the information about how the investigation unfolded by an affidavit written by South Burlington, Vermont detective Gerard Eno. His information about what happened in New Hampshire came from the New Hampshire police, and I feel like some of it's like that game of telephone which may be why some of this is a little confusing and why there are holes in it, we may get better information later. The most confusing thing, at least so far, about how the investigation unfolded concerns what's referred to as the burnt tent site. (laughs) Even taking into account that cops are not great writers, in this case, Detective Sergeant Girardino of the South Burlington Vermont Police, and the fact that affidavits are written by cops who are trying to convince a judge to sign an arrest warrant so there will be holes and things. It has parts that are hard to understand, but I'll try to tell it as clearly as possible. On January 22nd, 2022, four months before the reeds were shot, an area resident noticed a makeshift campsite with a tent near the Profile Avenue connector trail in the Broken Woods Trail System, and that Connector Trail is a little north of the Marsh Loop Trail. It crosses under the same power lines and then connects with Marsh Loop. The tent was about a quarter mile from where the reeds would be shot four months later. Hmm. This guy noticed it throughout the rest of the winter and into the spring. On April 15th, it's not clear why, he told Concord police about the tent site. That was three days before the reeds were killed. He brought Concord police officer Brian Craig to the site that day, where Craig saw a single tent padlocked with no one around. He couldn't see inside. The site was well kept with a pair of boots next to the tent door. Five days later, on April 20th, the same day the reeds were reported missing, another person came upon the site. But now everything had been burned, described in the affidavit as dozens of small propane tanks burnt in the shape of a tent. The guy who found it Hmm. said it looked like it had been burned within one or two days based on damage to nearby trees. It's not clear if this was when all those law enforcement people were in the woods looking for Steve and Wendy or after, if the guy knew there were people missing or didn't, if he was in fact maybe even someone in one of the search parties. It must have been burned after Detectives Lemoyne and Doyen talked to Arthur Kelly the same day because the site wasn't burned when they talked to Kelly, but how did all those searchers not see the smoke or fire? Anyway, the affidavit points out that what the guy found, quote, indicates that the tent was burnt sometime between April 15th and April 20th, a window of time which included the double homicide unquote. Steve and Wendy's bodies have been found on April 21st. On April 22nd, detectives went back to the tent site. The affidavit implies that it's because that's where they saw Arthur Kelly on April 20th, 
and it doesn't give any information at all about whether Brian Craig, the patrol cop who saw the tent site April 15th and April 20th, had said anything to anyone about it. Because if it was me and I were him, I'd be like, guys, you know how two people were shot to death in the woods just a few days before I was there and saw this campsite, and then it was all burned up. So maybe that's someone you could talk to. So maybe that happened. It's not clear. Like I said, the affidavit implies they just went back there because the two cops had talked to Arthur Kelly. It's almost written as though they are not connecting him to the campsite. On April 22nd, they found 155 small propane tanks, 47 soda cans, both Mountain Dew and Coca-Cola. And New Hampshire, remember, doesn't have a bottle bill, or I'm sure those cans. Oh, yeah. They also found a tent tarp sleeping bag remnants, three apparent pots. And I think everything had been like burned in a big pile, like it just piled onto the tent. And then he sent sent, like the tent, put the propane cans all around it and set it on fire. They found pieces of heating and cooking equipment, various remnants of plastic shopping bags from Walmart, Target and Hannaford two socks, one t-shirt, one melted Mountain Dew plastic bottle, 10 foreign coins later determined to be a one cent, two cent, and five cent euro. I don't know why it says later determined because I have some euro coins. And if you look at them, they say euro. (laughs) Several pieces of silverware and small knife blades. There are also remnants of food packaging, cans, glass jars, mugs, and apparent glass droppers initially thought to be smoking devices. Ooh. The affidavit says, based on the extensive reviews of the site, it was apparent that this campsite was used by an unidentified individual who utilized small propane tanks for heating cooking purposes. Given the volume of propane tanks, the individual was likely there for weeks or months before vacating the site between April 15th and April 20th. This time frame is consistent with the reports of unidentified white male frequently encountered on the Broken Ground Trails. And I know is it so hard to say that person left? I think they try to be as specific as possible because it's to get a warrant. But still, I'm just what they have to say individual. I know utilize and vacated because they don't know how to write. But anyway, by then, the dog walker had reported what she'd seen. And I assume Lemoyne and Doyen had put two and two together enough to realize Arthur Kelly might be somebody to take a look at. They were again struck by the Mountain Dew Code Red cans. So they got a hold of surveillance footage from Walmart to check on Mountain Dew Code Red purchases. There was footage of what the affidavit calls a male consistent in appearance with Arthur Kelly, who purchased the same soda on the afternoon. Smart. I know on the afternoon of April 20th, 2022. And remember, because I know there's a lot of dates here. April 20th was two days after they were shot, but was the day they were looking for them. They hadn't been found yet. And Lemoyne and Doyen ran into Arthur Kelly in the woods. He was wearing a face mask, though, so they couldn't be sure if he was Arthur Kelly. After the release of the May 17th composite, several people at Concord Police know that they'd seen a guy who resembled the sketch, who they believed was homeless and broken ground, that they thought he was living somewhere there in the woods. He was seen many times between November and April, often carrying plastic grocery bags or Amazon packages into the woods. He was described as clean-shaven, neat in appearance, and unfriendly. None of the people, which, you know, is rare for New Hampshire. I wonder what he got from Amazon. All sorts of stuff. You'll find out. You'll find out. None of the people who'd seen him over those months saw him again after the Reed's bodies were found. The affidavit says, with no further leads available at that time to identify the male, detectives continued with other investigative efforts. 
This male was referred to as the Mountain Dew Man. <laughs> and it could not be confirmed that he was the same male who identified himself as Arthur Kelly, unquote. This was around the same time Senior Assistant Attorney General Jeffrey Ward was telling people there was no danger to the public. Mm. Maybe because no one had seen the guy in the past month, he was saying. But, but still, still, give me a break. The police had no clue, and it stayed that way for weeks. So how are they saying there's no danger to the public when they have no clue? And again, we'll discuss it later. Okay. On May 20th, nearly a month after the first time they visited the burnt tent site, detectives went back to take another look at both that and the spot on the trail where they believe the shooting took place. And again, my question is, if they didn't have any investigative leads, why did it take them a month to go back to take another look at the site? I know. What the my, hell? My guess is they were spurred by the tips from people who recognized the sketch as the guy in the woods that was released three days before. But even so, the, this delay is confounding to me. Even without those people, the two cops saw him, the dog walker saw him, and he's the one consistently tied to the location where the reeds were killed. Why does it take nearly a month to go back and look? But at least they did. And I know cops get frustrated when people criticize them. But to me, this just seems an obvious thing to do. Whatever else you're doing, go back and look at the scene. And it's a good thing they did because about five mm -hmm. feet from the spot on the trail where they think the shooting happened, they found shell casings marked Sig Sauer Luger 9mm. 9mm were within the estimated size range of the bullets that killed the reeds. And that was like a month after the this shooting. Was, right? Yeah. They had already searched the site, but they, somehow mm -hmm. they missed those. And the ballistics test hadn't come back, but the 9mm shell casings were consistent with the bullets they yeah. found. Yeah. One wonders again why these weren't found a month earlier. They were five feet away from the site where they mm. thought the shootings were. And of course, just days after the shootings, it wasn't roped off as a crime area. So anybody could have been going through there doing, you know, picking up stuff and messing I with know. stuff and doing anything. In April 25th, New Hampshire patch story. So that was four days after the bodies were found, says that the scene was investigated for 48 hours. The story meticulously describes all the evidence ribbons everywhere and where they were grid search ribbons and where they go, including to a homeless camp that looks recently abandoned in other places. So they did search, but apparently not thoroughly enough. In July, three months after the murders, Concord detective Wade Brown was reviewing surveillance footage from the Shaw's supermarket on Loudon Road from the day of the murders, mm. April 18th. This was July and he was looking at April, just because I know there's a lot of dates, he was looking at April 18th surveillance footage. On the footage, he saw a guy leaving the store at 2.29 p.m. wearing dark pants, dark boots, a blue jacket, and apparent black leather baseball hat with a mm -hmm. blue bandana covering the lower part of his face. He was carrying a black backpack with a distinct white mark on the back. Detective Brown recognized him as Mountain Dew Man. Yeah. And he was the same guy that after the shootings, they'd been looking at Walmart footage, remember? And they saw him on mm -hmm. April 20th, two days after the shooting, leaving Walmart. And it was the same guy. I know it's confusing with the different dates. The affidavit says Mountain Dew Man, here and after MDM, was carrying a broken Shaw's shopping bag that looked like it had a cylinder-shaped object inside. Detective Brown showed the footage to another detective, Danica Gorham, and they agreed that MDM looked a lot like the dog walker's description, including the bag, with the primary oh. difference this is according to the affidavit being that he wore dark pants as opposed to tan pants now i don't expect you to remember but the description said khaki not tan so those can be a little darker and it just shows how details can change as things go on 
And also people aren't going to exactly remember everything. I give her credit for remembering as much as she did about the guy. The affidavit says Detective Gorham responded to Shaw's to personally view the surveillance footage, which in English means she went to Shaw's <laughs> to look at the footage. She didn't respond to them. The rest of the footage shows Mountain Dew Man crossing Loudon Road at 2.32 p.m. the day of the murders and heading onto a trail that cuts through the Alton Woods complex that leads to the Marsh Loop Trail. This would be the same trail that the Reeds were also heading towards. Detective Wade Brown walked the route from Shaw's to the crime scene and found there was plenty of time for someone to get there before the murders. He also determined it would be a logical route for a person to take if they were camping at the burnt tent site. The cops went back to Walmart to talk to Asset Protection Associates, <laughs> which I believe is the private anti-shoplifting yes, security the, force. Yes. Yeah. Do they have a private one? Because they call them stuff like that. They call they them may loss not, prevention, you, or they call them as I said, asset this, protection. It wasn't whatever. a it wasn't a journalist writing this. It was a cop. He capitalized the whole thing, and instead of calling them people or whatever, he called them the APA. Um, just I know from my newspaper work here, if Concord's anything like Augusta and Waterville, Maine, Walmarts are the biggest shoplifting sites in the city. I know in Waterville, the police were getting called there so many times a day that Walmart had to start paying for overtime shifts or something like that. The, the detectives asked, I'm just going to call them the shoplifting cops, to look for small propane tank sales. One of the shoplifting cops recalled that there was one guy who'd come in a lot to buy them over the winter. He described him as a white male, early 30s, who always wore a black baseball hat and a black backpack and a bandana mask. He'd always get the propane tanks, then go to the grocery section. So I assume they're up in something like just watching videos of people. Oh, probably. Yeah, that that's sounds like a fun do. job. I'd like to like that Kate Atkinson book, one of the case files books. The woman had that job when she got the little girl oh yes this guy who bought the propane tanks always used the self-serve checkouts and never interacted with other quote-unquote guests just like me another peeve they're not guests they're customers if they were guests they wouldn't have to pay for anything i hate it when people call customers guests i'm just saying <laughs> the cops looked at more surveillance footage and eventually found mountain dew man had bought stuff 47 times between november and april at walmart he always walked in the same direction when he left the store to Alton Woods. The earliest transaction they could find is the one I mentioned earlier on November 28th when he bought the tent. He was wearing the exact same clothes he wore in the April 18th footage, by the way, every single time. Do you ever wonder, like, if somebody started watching you? I know, I wear like, the same clothes all the time. Me too. On the morning of April 19th, the day after the murders, he bought a three-person tent a sleeping mm. bag, and a bottle of 91% rubbing alcohol. He's not seen after April 20th on surveillance footage from either Shaw's or Walmart. On Thursday, August 25th, four months after the murders, a team of Concord police detectives went back to the burnt tent site, and this, again, is four months after the murders, to search, recover, and seize any and all remaining non-natural items as part of the continued efforts to learn mountain dew man's true identity <laughs> and i also hate the phrase any and all i'm just going to throw that out there i know i hate a lot of stuff you're very hateful i know using a metal detector the team of detectives found a spent shell casing marked sig sour luger nine millimeter within the debris inside the original tent footprint and again they're fucking lucky four months later that stuff was still there 
About 15 feet from the tent footprint, two detectives found eight more spent shell casings that were all marked Sig Sauer Luger 9mm. They were all a few feet from each other, which the affidavit says is consistent with ejection patterns when target shooting from the same general spot. Quote, detectives observed that an apparent natural clearing created a firing lane and mm. multiple trees were located downrange from the spot with apparent bullet defects, i.e. <laughs> scars or marks consistent with the tra- trajectory path of a bullet. And again, four months they're finding this. And also the f- amount of time in a trial that's going to work in the defense's favor. I know. I get why looking at all the Walmart and Shaw's footage and stuff took so long, especially since they were investigating other avenues and we're just hearing about one in this. But again, how much of a search did they do after Steve and Wendy's bodies were found, especially since they knew about the tent site? They had the dog walker's description, who's similar to the guy the two cops saw on April 20th. I I mean, wouldn't you say, hey, that site is near the murders and the guy took off. Maybe we better just fucking scour it for shit. Back in April, not in August, he burned his tent down, which to me is an indicator that he wanted to get the hell out of there and not leave anything behind that would identify him. They also went back to the scene August 30th and 31st with the metal detector and found 10 more spent shell casings, all the same as the others. They also found a bullet a few inches underground and downrange from the spent Hmm. shell casings. It was consistent in size, the nine millimeter, and they figured it likely came from one of the casings. Then they took the metal detector to the spot where the shootings took place because that was all at the burnt tent site. They found three spent bullets approximately eight to 10 inches underground on the trail itself that were similar to the ones they'd already found. The bullets were in the same area where coagulated blood and bullet fragments were previously found, making it highly probable that they were fired during the shooting, passing through the reeds and into the ground. That's another thing. I mean, the autopsy was done right after the shootings. The bullets passed through them. You know that. Don't you go back and see if you can. I don't know. I mean, I'm not trained in investigation. I know. I, I watch too much TV. You do. It's I a CSI many, write, write too many, which is a show I hate. When you're writing a novel, you're like, what would be the logical thing the cop would do here? I want to make this logical. I don't want readers saying, why isn't he doing this or why yeah. is he doing that? And I would be have, having them go to the scene. But anyway, not four months later. People would read it and say, why did they go back four months later? This book sucks. Meanwhile, investigators were also reviewing Walmart records where they found 12 transactions where Mountain Dew Man paid with five different credit cards Ooh. or debit cards issued by MetaBank and Sutton Bank. Detective Wade Brown got a search warrant to search the bank records. At one point, they call them gift cards, but I don't believe they're gift cards. I believe they're credit cards. Because gift cards, you don't have to put any of your own information on them. It's not clear all that they found out from searching the bank records, but they did find out about the vitamin purchases that I mentioned earlier from Bulk Supplement Company on December 8th and 9th. Detective Wade Brown contacted that company and found the name of the customer who bought the vitamins was Logan Clegg. Now they knew who Mountain Dew Man was. They knew what his name was. Mountain Dew Man. Logan Clegg picked up the vitamins on December 13th at the FedEx pickup at the Walgreens on Loudon Road and signed for them with his real name, Logan Clegg. He also included his email address, rkxkelly at gmail.com. So this is the first time they had his email address. The affidavit says, Detective Brown noted that this email address incorporated the last name of Kelly, similar to Arthur Kelly. What? 
Well, you know, don't blame. That might might be the writer. Yes, I know. Now that they had a name, they were off to the races. All right. They investigated criminal records with that name and found his booking photo from the Utah burglary arrest. The affidavit says... Concord PD noted immediately that Logan Clegg was remarkably similar to the images of the Mountain Dew man, as well as to the suspect sketch. Detective Garrett Lemoyne reviewed the booking photo of Logan Clegg and stated that he was certain that this was the same man he spoke to in the tent, provided the name Arthur Kelly on April 20th, 2022. They also found out he was wanted on an active arrest warrant for burglary out of Logan, Mm -hmm. Utah. Then, and this is one of my favorite parts of the whole affidavit, okay? Logan, Utah is a town about an hour north of Salt Lake City, which, coincidentally, shares Logan's first name. Yeah. For clarity, I will refer to Logan Clegg as Clegg in the next few paragraphs, unquote. It's kind of cute, actually. Mm. I feel like in an affidavit, you should probably use a last name anyway, so it's not all this chummy, Logan did this and Logan, you know? The affidavit also notes that in a photo from the Walmart arrest, Clegg is wearing a blade baseball cap, blue bandana, dark blue shirt, and dark sweatshirt, all very similar to Mountain Dew Man's regular outfit at the Concord Walmart. Now that they knew his name, they found out all about Clegg's crimes in Utah, his job at McDonald's, and that was another gumshoe thing. Two detectives went to every fast food restaurant in Loudon Road until they found the one he worked and they ate at each one. I know, they had to, I know. They had it's to like sample that. the food. I know. It's like that documentary. Oh, super Yeah. I think McDonald's or fast food restaurants in general are notorious for not doing a lot of background checking. Because I was just listening to a podcast where a woman had been wrongfully convicted of something 30 years ago and she was let out. And I don't even know if she was convicted or was just being held on something but there was a record and when they threw away the case and found out she didn't do it it was one of those satanic panic things she was let out and now 30 years later the only place she can get a job at is mcdonald's because nobody will hire her because of her fault i think they're so desperate i mean not but they are they're desperate for people to work there so they don't care if you have a record right and it depends on what you're doing and what your crime was anyway so they went to all the fast food restaurants on loudon road of which there are many and that was actually good thinking on somebody's part too like okay where if a guy like this was working where would he work yeah because he must be getting money from somewhere. The manager at McDonald's said Clegg was quiet, didn't have Hmm. any friends, always carried a black backpack, wore a black leather baseball cap, and always wore the same clothes. She figured he was homeless. They also found out about his international flights from the Homeland Security Department. By now it was mid-September, and the ballistics tests had come back on the nine shell casings they found at the burnt tent site, and tests showed they were fired by the same gun as the two shell casings found at the crime scene. So you see how they do have to like tie each little piece together. Yes, they do. Concord police had also subpoenaed Greyhound bus lines for records. Another good thinking on somebody's part. How's this guy getting around? He's probably taking the bus, right? And they got those results on October 3rd, you know, a few months ago. There were no records under the name Logan Clegg, but on May 15th, a few weeks after the murders, Arthur Kelly bought a bus ticket from Boston to Burlington, Vermont. Clegg, a.k.a. Kelly, paid for the ticket with a credit card, took the bus to Albany, New York, and then switched to Vermont Trans Lines and went to Burlington. They also subpoenaed Google for more information on the RKX Kelly email address, and on October 7th got those results. They learned about multiple credit card transactions that he'd gotten 
the email using the name Arthur Kelly, but used his real name for transactions, Logan Ooh. Clegg. And the affidavit says, this provided further corroboration that Arthur Kelly and Logan Clegg are the same individual. Mm-hmm. On October 11th, Detective Danica Gorham got a call from Detective Matt Pierce at the Logan City Police Department in Utah. They talked a few times. I guess they were becoming like investigation buddies or something. Pierce had some big news that set the clock ticking on tracking down Logan Clegg. Clegg had bought a one-way ticket to Berlin, Germany. I always want to say Berlin, like in New Hampshire, that was to fly out of JFK Airport in New York City on October 14th at 3 a.m. on North Atlantic Airways, three days from then. Ooh, it's just like a movie. I know. Pierce had gotten that news from a Homeland Security agent, I assume because of the warrant in Utah that they had a thing for his name to flag his name. And at 4.30 p.m. on October 11th, another Homeland Security agent emailed Detective Gorham with the information that had been included with Clegg's ticket purchase, including an address, three email accounts, and a phone number. The address was 11 Elmwood Ave in Burlington, Vermont, which turns out to be the federal courthouse. So haha, he has a sense of humor. The phone number was a Verizon track phone. Detective Gorham began immediately working with Verizon on getting location information on the phone, which yeah. you can get apparently on a track phone. You used to not I didn't be able know to. That. Verizon was able to get pings every 15 minutes. The evening of October 11th, it was pinging in the area of Centennial Woods Phenology Place, a 3.8 mile loop used for hiking and walking in Burlington, Vermont. By now, detectives were hurtling up Interstate 89 to Burlington, Vermont, a two and a half hour drive, all interstate. And I bet they were going fast with little... uh... At 9.20 a.m. on October 12th, Clegg's phone pinged in an area of the Price Chopper grocery store in Burlington. At 9.33 a.m., Doyen and Lemoyne arrived at the Price Chopper, and as the affidavit puts it, they had eyes on a male subject they recognized to be Logan Clegg. Clegg was wearing a black baseball-style hat, possibly leather, a light-colored long-sleeve shirt, dark-colored pants, and carrying a black backpack. The affidavit says, This clothing being similar or identical to the clothing worn by Logan Clegg in the Walmart surveillance video at 344 Loudon Road in Concord, New Hampshire, and on the Shaw's video surveillance at 20 DeMonte Drive in Concord, New Hampshire, on April 18, 2022, the day of the Reed homicides, unquote. Mm. Lemoyne and Doyen got back up from Vermont State Police and the South Burlington Police Department, keeping track of Clegg. And I assume they had to get the warrant and do all sorts of official stuff. But at 1.10 p.m. on October 12th, the Vermont State Police and South Burlington Police Department arrested him at the South Burlington Public Library, arrested him on the Utah fugitive warrant. There's video body cam footage online of the arrest, which I'll put on our website. It's not terribly exciting, but it does show what happened. And I wonder if they cleared the library beforehand or if there just weren't a lot of people in there. But how would they clear it without Clegg knowing? Anyway, you can tell there's a lot of plainclothes officers. I'm like, oh, what are these? There's like the guy there. And then they pixelate his face. It's like they're plainclothes undercover officers. And you don't see a lot of other people around. It's hard to tell because it's a body cam. So half the time it's just pointed at some stack of books or something. (laughs) But anyway, he was upstairs by the adult fiction stacks working on a laptop. They came up behind him. There must have been about a dozen of them. They were all armed and excited. Some oh, of them were geez. in plain clothes and some of them were in tactical gear. And 
but it was fairly businesslike and quiet. They shouted at him. He put his hands up and he's they like, shouted in the library. Yeah. And he's just like, okay, okay. And put his hands up. He was wearing the black leather baseball cap, by the way. And it was ugly. <laughs> I don't know why people were, when they got him to the station, he waved Miranda, never a good idea, yeah. Logan, and agreed to talk to Concord detective Wade Brown. Logan said he had lived in Concord and worked at McDonald's during part of 2021 and 22, but denied staying near the Alton Woods apartment complex, broken ground trail system, staying in a tent, shopping at Walmart more than a couple of times, Mm -hmm. using the alias Arthur Kelly, having any interaction with Concord police officers, ever using or possessing firearms while in Concord, or being involved in the murders of Stephen and Wendy Reed. He denied all of that. One thing about talking to police is even though he isn't saying anything there, that's going to implicate him when he's on trial, the prosecution is going to say, why did you lie about all I this? know. Because, of course, they could prove it all. The next day, October 13th, they used location data from Verizon and found his tent site near Patchen Road on the campus of the University mm-hmm. of Vermont. He had an Ozark trail tent, a camouflage tarp, and several Mountain Dew Code Red bottles. The tent is the same model he bought at the Concord Walmart on April 19th, the day after the Reeds were killed. In his backpack, they found a black Glock 17 handgun inside a black holster, fully loaded with Sig Sauer Luger 9mm ammunition with one round in the chamber. They found a U.S. passport in his name, but the birthday was January 26, 1996, not January 24th. Um, And I don't know if that's a typo in the affidavit or uh, what. They found a letter-sized envelope addressed to Arthur Kelly. Mm. They found a Romanian passport card with the name Claude Zemo, but a photo of Clegg, a wallet with $7,150 in cash, and two Visa Vanilla gift cards, which are gift cards you can use anywhere. Yes. That was all in his backpack. At his tent site, they found two boxes of Sig Sauer Luger 9mm ammunition, gun cleaning equipment, earplugs, and an ammunition magazine for Glock 17. There was also a sleeping bag, the same brand and everything as the one he bought at the Concord Walmart on April 19th, a U.S. post office package with the name and address crossed out. Visible through the cross out was the name Arthur Kelly. That same day, he was arraigned in Chittenden County Superior Court on a fugitive from justice charge based on the Utah probation warrant in order Mm -hmm. held without bail. On October 14th, the gun was taken to the New Hampshire State Police Forensic Laboratory for examination and was found to shoot bullets consistent with those at the crime scene. Ditto for the shell casings found at the burnt tent site and the crime scene. So bing, 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 all the the dots are tied up. They also found out from a place called Brownells in Iowa that Clegg bought two 17-round magazines for a Glock 17 handgun on March 26, 2022. you know, online through the mail, which were shipped to him in his name, Logan Clegg, at a general delivery So you can uh, buy that stuff? Yes, yes you can. Huh. That's part of the problem. I'm so ignorant of these things. I know. Also on October 14th, they talked with the owner of RNL Archery, Inc., the shop in Barry, Vermont, where he bought the gun, who confirmed selling the Glock 17 to Arthur Kelly on February 12th. Kelly, a.k.a. Clegg, paid cash for the Glock 17 mm. and also bought three boxes of Sig Sauer Luger 9mm ammunition. And if you remember, he used his Vermont driver's license for ID that had a number yeah, that should have flagged and the guy yes, claimed it, it should didn't. have. On October 18th, Detective Gorham of the Concord Police Department got an arrest warrant for Clegg on two charges of knowing second-degree murder. 
Hmm. On October 20th, an extradition hearing was held in Chittenden County in Vermont. WMUR-TV from Manchester, New Hampshire has a video of it that I'll also put on our website. Clegg seemed terse and annoyed. I guess you can't blame him. The attorney who was representing him in Vermont, I think his name is Stephen Dunham, also seemed annoyed. And since Clegg was attending a video from the jail, the judge is like, why can't we see Mr. Clegg? And the lawyer said he told Clegg to turn his video off since there was so much media interest. And the judge, Mary Morrissey, was not happy because she said she had to see him and she wanted his video on. So he had to turn it on. I would have been pissed, too. It's like, don't I'm the judge. She also seemed a little annoyed he wasn't there in person since technically he's supposed to sign his extradition waiver in front of her. And I think that was the lawyer's idea. And I don't know why, because she asked him later in the hearing if he had known that he could be there in person. And he said, no, he hadn't, but it didn't matter. And she said, okay, so you're waiving your right to have been here in person. And he seemed annoyed because he answered mostly in monosyllables, but she was asking do you understand what extradition? Do you understand blah, blah, blah? She was very nice. And, and he seemed kind of annoyed that she kept asking, but it's because she has to cover her. They tracks have to. So that his yeah. defense later can't say he didn't waive his extradition correctly and all this kind of stuff. But it's interesting to watch that just to see how the process works. The New Hampshire Attorney General's office had asked her to seal the Vermont affidavit. And I think Clegg's Vermont lawyer, Steve Dunham, seemed to favor it being sealed too. But she denied the request, saying there was no legal reason to. And since it was the basis for his arrest on the Utah burglary charge, she was not going to seal it. And that was good for us, too, since it's where I got most of the information for this episode. (laughs) There was a news conference that same day, October 20th in Concord, New Hampshire, with Police Chief Bradley Osgood and Attorney General John Formella. Osgood said, six months ago, this senseless tragedy became our number one priority, Not a single day went by where it did not remain our highest priority, and it Hmm. still remains our highest priority today. I believe him. I mean, they had all that overtime and stuff. And Formella, the attorney general, asked people in the community to get in touch with information about Clegg or memories from the area in Concord last April. It's not uncommon for witnesses to realize that they have information that may be relevant after an arrest is made, he said. He added, Mr. Clegg's arrest is a significant step in this case, but it is only one step. There is a long way to go and a lot of work to be done. He also pointed out that Clegg is innocent until proven guilty, something apparently only he's paying attention to. We're sure not. And his family <laughs> isn't. And the reporters at the press conference had their usual insightful questions, a lot having to do with stuff we now know the answers to, thanks to the affidavit, so I won't go through them. But on some of the things we don't know answers for, For instance, one reporter asked how a transient could have that kind of money needed to travel around like Clegg had done in the past few years while also being involved in so many crimes. Can you talk about that at all? The reporter asked. I can't talk about any of that today, Formella said, but those may be questions that will be answered in the coming weeks and months, but I can't get into that today. When asked if there was a motive or if they knew exactly what happened on the trail, Formella said, again, I can't get into that. But he added they believe they had evidence beyond a reasonable doubt that led to the charges. Reporters wouldn't give up. Everyone wants to know about a motive. When asked if the Reeds were killed randomly or they were targeted, neither Formella or Osgood would say. Was it a chance encounter? Another reporter asked. They wouldn't say. <laughs> it's like I already told you. I know. New Hampshire Patch, in a story about the press conference, pontificated. 
Journalists have been told for months that evidence about the case beyond a single sketch could not be shared because investigators did not want the suspect or suspects to know what they knew. However, when asked Thursday about when the department would be answering questions about the case, now that there was a suspect in custody, Formella said during the investigation, officials could not release anything. And now that there were pending charges, they also could not share evidence yeah. with the public or the press due to ethical obligations mm. of the court process. But as the case moves forward, more information may be shared. And ethical obligations was in quotes, so take that <laughs> for what you will. Then, of course, there's one at every press conference where an arrest is made. One kiss-ass cop-lover reporter had a question. There's one in every crowd. I even put one in my book, my second book, No News is Bad News, at a press conference. Mm. The reporter asked Osgood, the police chief, about whether the arrest was a relief and what it mm. meant to the department. Osgood said he tipped his hat to the officers and there was the usual self-congratulatory stuff about how hard they worked and blah, 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 which yes, they did. But still reporters who ask that stuff always confound me. What a stupid bullshit question to ask. Osgood also said it was a long process and there was still work to be done. Logan Clegg was extradited to New Hampshire and scheduled to be arraigned October 25th in Merrimack County Superior Court, but he waived his arraignment hearing and pleaded not guilty and a bail agreement was filed with the court. He has the right to request a bail hearing at a later date. Hmm. The Concord Monitor was the only news source I could find that had any more information about the court procedure, although the New Hampshire Union leader may have, but since they're locking me out of my subscription for whatever reason, I don't feel like keeping messing with my password should I didn't look. Anyway, the Monitor reported that Merrimack County Superior Judge John Kissinger ordered Clegg held without bail based on clear and convincing evidence that the defendant's release will endanger the safety of the defendant or the public. Clegg will appear for a disposition hearing at a later date that apparently hasn't been set or I couldn't find it anywhere. Interestingly, and I can only find this in the monitor as well, a copy of a New Hampshire affidavit that apparently has much more information than the Vermont one we had access to was sealed by Kissinger at the request Mm. of the New Hampshire Attorney General's office. Unlike the Vermont one, the Vermont judge wouldn't seal. Michael Garrity, the Attorney General's Director of Communications, told the monitor This is common as far as any homicide case. The investigation is still open and ongoing. Parody said the unsealed Vermont affidavit is very similar to the New Hampshire one, but the New Hampshire one is more involved. He said there are more details related to the investigation. The other one was a more condensed version that was given to our partner in Vermont. And our version here is a longer form. So I'm hoping if we ever see the New Hampshire one, it'll clear up the confusion about the burnt tent site and also maybe why it took them so long to get back to the site and find stuff, you know, if they have more information about the investigation. Also, hopefully he it'll go to trial. Yeah, just instead of be, him just so, pleading. Yeah. If he pleads guilty, never right. find anything right. out. Although the affidavit may come out, none of the things said who his lawyer in New Hampshire was, though. Maybe his lawyer told him, like, to waive the bail hearing because if you have the hearing, they use the affidavit. Yeah, so they do. maybe that. After the arrest, the Reed's daughter, Lindsay, released a statement from the family. The Reed, Pasco, and Forey families are grateful to the diligent efforts of the Concord Police Department, the New Hampshire Attorney General's Office, and the countless other federal, state, county, and local law enforcement agencies in New Hampshire. Vermont, and Utah, who worked collaboratively in order to identify, locate, and arrest the individual responsible for the murders of Wendy and Stephen Reed. We would also like to thank the many community members who contributed to the investigation with tips and information, as well as the groups and individuals who contributed to the tip award line. 
Corey Ward's mother, Lisa Ward, in Spokane, Washington, remember Corey Ward? Yes. Said ever since Logan Clegg got arrested, she's been following the case. Hmm. And she doesn't think the information will ever come out about what happened with Corey, but she feels deeply for the Reeds and hopes that at least some justice will get done in this case. And she's glad the police worked so hard. Channel 5 in Boston got some kudos for actually finding someone to talk to about the Reeds. And by the way, we have a lot about them in the update on episode 124. People are wondering why I'm not talking about them that much. But Channel 5, after the arrest, talked to Louis Siegel of Burlington, Vermont, where the Reeds had once lived, though it's, I believe, just a coincidence that Clegg ended up there too. Siegel was a co-worker of Steve Reeds, a tennis partner, and also a dear friend of Wendy's, he told Channel 5. Even though they lived two and a half hours away from each other now that the Reeds were in Concord, they still talked and saw each other often. He said Wendy was generous with advice from a thoughtful and caring perspective. Quote, they were really wonderful, wonderful people. They will be remembered for their goodness, for their kindness, for the dedication to work, for their dedication to family. Siegel worked at USAID with Steve Reed on international development projects in places like Haiti and Senegal, helping governments better serve their people in a range of ways, while also protecting natural resources. He said the Reeds also let him and his partner move in with them when they were living in Haiti after the 2010 earthquake damaged the property where Siegel was staying. The Reeds' house hadn't been damaged in the earthquake. The Reeds were there too, working for USAID. They graciously took us in along with my partner's handicapped brother, and they were just so hospitable and helpful, Siegel said. He added, The outpouring of sympathies and grief from people all over the world, and in particularly from colleagues on projects that he had worked on overseas, was just incredible. He said he hopes the arrest can be a significant step in the long healing process for the family and other loved ones of the Reeds. There are a few things I have thoughts about, and then we can discuss. First, the overarching thing, by all accounts, the Reeds were kind, compassionate, caring, intelligent, loved people, and whatever happened on that trail, he's not going to be able to use the self-defense excuse that he used with Corey Ward. Yes. You know? What's he going to say? I know. We can only speculate what happened, and I believe there still could be a racial motive. Since they walked there often, maybe he'd seen them a lot, and it just pissed him off. Who knows? It obviously happened pretty fast between the time the dog walker saw them and then saw him. And I'll keep saying it forever, but anytime someone carries around a loaded gun, Mm. they're going to try to find a reason to use it. He obviously was comfortable with one. And even when he was caught twice in Utah with a stolen loaded gun and no permit, he didn't have any gun charges. He was able to fraudulently buy a gun from a dealer who obviously didn't care about it being flagged. It doesn't pass the straight face test that a false license that the police were able to see the number right away didn't work, didn't raise the flag. And you have to wonder why he went all the way to Barry, Vermont to get it. Granted, he used a Vermont license, a fake license, but there must have been closer places. I mean, Barry is in the center of the state. He could have gotten off the bus a lot earlier. I don't think it's a coincidence that his time in the U.S. traveling was spent in gun-friendly states that allow concealed carry, even though he didn't have permits. Obviously, nobody gave a shit. He was carrying a loaded gun around. I see a lot of articles describe him as a homeless person, but I don't really think of him as that. And I'm not just talking about the new jargony unhoused people say instead of homeless now, but just that he seemed comfortable outside 
and that's the way he chose to live. And it just goes to show the only difference between someone who's homeless and someone who isn't often is that the homeless person is outside. I think the $7,000 could easily be from him working at McDonald's, not having a lot of overhead and being a burglar and a thief. But who knows? Mm -hmm. He could have possibly gotten the Claude Zemo passport and fake Vermont license online like he did with other stuff. And maybe he had some connection somewhere. I have no clue what was going on when he went overseas. I don't know if we'll ever know, but my guess is he bummed around the same way he did here. And finally, when he was arrested, the no danger to the public thing is the first mm. thing I thought about because this is another clear case where they didn't know jack shit. And here was a guy in the woods who randomly shot two people who would not have provoked anybody. It wasn't a robbery. He hung around in the woods for two days after he killed them. When he was arrested in Vermont, he had a loaded gun in his backpack in the library with a bullet in the chamber. So give me a fucking break that there was no danger to the public. And I also want to say, especially the lengthy Boston Globe story that was written from that affidavit and talked to people, the people who knew him in Washington State, people implied his dad's suicide, the fact that he was homeless and stuff. There seemed to be sympathy or empathy for him. And on one hand, he obviously had trauma that wasn't being dealt with, but he was red flag city. And those are just the things we know about. I say it all the time, and I'm just going to keep saying it all the time. School shooters, other killers, domestic violence murders, all these people, there are red flags, but especially if they are white men, they tend to get a pass, especially yeah. if they're white men who are angry. Like I've worked with quiet white men who are toxic as fucking shit, but got a pass on everything they did. And I know it's not the same thing as killing people because they're quiet until people <laughs> recognize red flags and take gun shit seriously. So what are your thoughts? I know there's a lot. Well, there. in a lot of ways, he reminds me of Ted Kaczynski yeah. And who was the Unabomber, for those right. of you that don't know, and the North Pond Herm. Chris who, Knight, who chose to live outside, although he yes. didn't kill anyone. And Tegaziski chose to live in that little cabin right. Right. away from people. And he did kill people in a different way. Yes. And he was quiet. Although he was more eccentric. And I looked at pictures of Logan He looks Clyde. very familiar to me, but I know I know I looks am. like a I should watch the video because sometimes people look okay in the picture, but then when you see them He looks just like annoyed, like, why am I here? And I'm not saying that that's his attitude. Well, everybody has a different affect. If you didn't know what was going on, you just think he was in a boring, like, physics class or something. Yeah. I know there really isn't a motive. I mean, what motive could there be? Yeah, he just wanted to shoot. I'm sure he had anger. The stuff he said to the cops in Utah, speaking of red flags, it could have been racial. Like I said, he could claim Corey Ward was the aggressor and everything, and Corey's mother and girlfriend can say Corey wouldn't have gone down there if something hadn't happened from the window and he could get away with it because he's little and Corey was big but he's going to have a much tougher road to hoe no defense attorney is going to be able to rip those two people apart no no, no matter what story he tells and it Nothing. happened fast it yeah. happened too fast all I can think of that wouldn't be him targeting somebody walking by would be he was shooting his gun and he shot one of them and then he shot like, them oh, both shit, and shot the other yeah. yeah so i don't think he practiced i'm not trying shot. to say that right. he didn't do it on purpose but i'm saying that's the only right. scenario i don't think he practiced shot on the trail there he did it by his tent site which was a quarter mile away they didn't find any signs of practice shooting 
where they were killed maybe. something made him mad maybe or he, he just want to shoot or he just said i have a loaded gun you know i'm gonna shoot and who knows maybe he's killed i mean between Corey ward and them maybe he has he could killed kill somebody people. somewhere in know. europe or somewhere else and it's an unsolved if he's carrying thing. guns around all the time and he's right. going all over the because as that professor said most random killings are unsolved and that's how that just gumshoe grinding yeah. minutiae work they did to connect the dots well on this. paying attention to details yes. like the mountain dew right i know this is gonna sound very like Say it anyway. Say- no detail is too mundane right. when it's a murder even you know what kind of soda someone drinks like for me if they thought i had killed somebody the if, diet coke if, woman yes they would say that at the like the big apple they'd be like oh, oh yeah she drinks she like comes in here every day. morning and buys a diet coke we call right. her diet coke lady thing is too here's the difference between solving a case and not because i can see somewhere else where they're trying to solve a case somebody saying you know he had that mountain dew code red maybe we should start looking to see if there's surveillance tape of somebody buying mountain dew code red and somebody else says, ah, you know, I mean, it's it's soda. Yeah. So that's the difference between a case being solved. Yeah. You know, I tried to tell it in a linear way, but there is stuff I told before they knew it. But they spent all that time doing all that just so they could figure out his name. You know, I know. and, it's, and really I think did. there seemed to be some frustration that nobody at McDonald's or whatever identified him in the sketch. Like nobody who knew his name identified him in the sketch, but they released that one sketch that was a profile and it could have been anybody. It looked like my boss at the newspaper. I mean, would you, you know? think, yeah. Right. Well, just like with the uh, Yorkshire Ripper, I mean, people jokingly right. called it, the guy Pete Sutcliffe that. Right. Because he was. Because he looked like the cr- <laughs> But also he had quit McDonald's February 6th. So it's not like they're like, oh, wait, Logan hasn't showed up for work since those people were shot. And the other thing I found is interesting is after he quit McDonald's, he bought the ticket for Reykjavik. But instead of going, he bought a gun and ammunition and stayed. I know. And so you almost wonder if something had happened in February and he said, at some point, I'm going to kill either that couple or I'm going to kill somebody. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it'll be interesting to find out if we ever find out what happened. If he ever tells it to. That's the thing I always wonder, like, what really happened? Right. And the story will have to be all his account. So, you know, know. it's not going to be because there's no it's not like they had their phones and like down the hill kids or anything because they left all their stuff at home. People can speculate it would have been a robbery, but I don't think if he were robbing people, like, and he didn't know they didn't have their wallets and phones with them, Yeah, but you're not going to rob people a quarter mile from your campsite. I know. I think it's interesting he stuck around after he killed them for two days. I know. I know. You know, and didn't leave until the cops came to his tent site and everybody was looking for That's so weird. I know. All I can think of is that he wanted to see what would happen. Or or didn't think anyone would find the bodies. Oh, that could be too. Yeah. I don't know. Just, it's just a really weird when they were first shot and killed. I don't know why, but I just had a feeling it was a stranger thing, even though that isn't very common, right? especially in Maine. Like we talk about it in Maine and New Hampshire, New right. Hampshire, similar to Maine. It's, it's usually people that know each other. Whether it's people who know each other or whether it's strangers, there will be a lot less of it if carrying around a loaded gun wasn't so normalized. Or if you get caught with stolen guns, 
the cop in Utah said that burglary, he was targeting the guns. And then he's caught twice with loaded guns <laughs> with him, <laughs> and they give him a suspended sentence. And they don't even charge him with a gun violation. I mean, at least charge him with a gun violation so it's on his record. I clearly know nothing about guns, but I would think that even though they're not regulated enough, in my opinion, sorry to any listeners, not sorry. I go to buy a gun. My license is fake. They sell me the gun anyway. Okay. So they're supposedly supposed to submit that information to the FBI. Like, they- Well, how it works is you go to buy a gun, you give them your license. Yes. They type your license number right there into the FBI. Yes. All gun dealers have that. Okay. If it comes up with a hold, you can't sell them the gun. Okay. And if it's not a legitimate license, or if you have a felony conviction, it comes up with a hold. So it had to have come up with a hold because it was a fake number. If it did, even though the and guy he claims told it, it, then there should be, I know, but there should be some kind of recourse for the gun owner. Right. Yes. The gun shop should have some kind of record. I sold this gun serial number, blah, 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 to on um, whatever date. And the FBI should say, wait a minute, why was this gun sold when there is a hold? There right. should be some kind of right. reason why you're doing we, that. We can't only, really claim ignorance. The only reason they know what happened is because he shot somebody with the gun and they found him out. He had a laptop. So I'm wondering if he researched online gun shops that were more lenient than others. You know, there's all sorts of, not the dark, well, the dark web probably, right. but there's all sorts of places where you could be like, hey, where's a good place for me to go? Well, I'm where's, sure there's chat you know, rooms places, and shit. Yeah, yeah, and and he, he certainly know where to buy ammunition online and shit. And who else knows what he bought when people saw him with Amazon packages and <laughs> Do you want to no, talk about the no that, danger to the public? Well, I was just going to say about him, like I said, regardless of what his mental health issues were, which he had, obviously. And like I said, he, he did remind me of both the hermit, Chris Christopher Knight, Knight. And not the Brady Bunch, Peter Brady, right. Christopher Knight, and Ty Kaczynski, just because of that same kind of... And Chris Knight never killed anybody. He had <laughs> a similar antisocial he did steal a lot from people and even though some people say well you know all he was doing was stealing it it did fuck well, the people well, it's up. well it, documented in the articles of the papers i worked for at the time which are like i live just 10 miles yes. from where he was and stuff it upset and terrorized yeah. people it's, it's traumatizing scary. for somebody to be yeah. breaking into your house or your camp yes. and i feel bad he's had trauma in his life but people don't want to address red flags and almost every fucking mass shooter or domestic yeah. violence killer or something shows all this shit. It's a combination every between single, every single between one. white men getting passes and everybody ignoring red flags. Even when you're when I'm listening to podcasts, I was just talking about this the other day with you about something I was listening to, either listening to a podcast or watching Dateline or any of those where people are like, you know, it just came out of the blue, blah, blah, blah. And then they keep talking and it's this person, there's red flags. You just right. have to look for them. What doesn't help is the media, ooh, what's the motive? Oh, there doesn't oh, seem to be a motive like the Las Vegas shooter. Nobody's still figured out the motive. And it's like, the motive is he was an entitled controlling asshole with a gun. Yeah. And until people start recognizing yeah. 
that that's the issue that it's not like people see, feel like there has to be one thing there has to be some trigger. oh he was he rejected by a woman like even when logan clegg killed cory ward well cory ward attacked him and wanted to fight and he was scared and he had a knife well maybe cory ward was mad because he saw logan clegg poking around his car because he was a thief and everything um and i'm not saying he's the guy who stole cory's car but maybe he was looking because yeah. he was a thief a known thief Mm -hmm. maybe Corey confronted him and obviously logan doesn't like being confronted because look at what he told those cops that he would have shot one of them and they what did they laugh that off it's hard to say he's the little guy right you know a little thin guy that probably just like put a loser i'm glad they caught somebody right i honestly didn't think they would there's been other murders like that in a place like that well probably in big cities too but you don't even notice but like i'm sure most of the unsolved ones if you remember i think it was the update on episode 124 because somebody said oh it's so rare for a couple to be killed in new hampshire and i found like half a dozen cases and most of them are unsolved but you can see why i couldn't do this as an update and i will look forward to updates as he goes to trial yes maybe i'll have to do another episode if the new hampshire affidavits ever released so do you have an NNW? <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> okay, what I'm doing is the series Bad Sisters, which is on Apple Plus. It's a short run series. I think it's based on a book. It is, yes. It probably. Is. And I just want to say I have not. I, well, I'm, I'm not going to spoil it. Okay. The reason I haven't watched it is... When I got my new iPad, I got three free months of Apple Plus, which I think has expired now. But I found you can't watch Apple Plus using a Chromecast. No. And I don't want to watch something on my iPad. I want to Chromecast it to my TV. So I'm like, well, I'll get whatever the stick they have is. Apple TV. Oh, yeah. That right. Fire the stick Apple stick. But I just hadn't gotten around to doing it. Okay. If you say so. I watched it on my phone i know you did but i don't because i could watch it on my giant television downstairs yeah well mom's guess... watch msnbc or dad's watching football yeah when you watch something on a phone and i know all the kids are doing it these days and shit but i feel like you just miss a lot and i, I... think so too i might watch it with mom there's nothing really it's nothing right. graphic sex wise or anything when, but she won't know what's going whatever on whatever year that movie problem. coming home came out early 70s yeah. i went with mom and etta to go see it i must have been 12 or 13 and there's a sex scene in fact i think that's the first time i realized the woman like they did it because he was in a wheelchair John yeah, Boy. Yeah. and it's like oh the woman can sit on the guy's penis but it yeah. was probably the most one of the more embarrassing moments of my exactly. life exactly i'm still scarred I don't want to relive that even though 50, i'm 57 50 years later i know anyway um, i'm sorry go on with your well in any case that wouldn't happen watching this because there aren't any there are a couple scenes but they're nothing so bad sisters it's about five sisters who live in Ireland somewhere. I'm sorry. You don't I'm going to watch it again anyway. Bad reenactments, obviously, no. Narrative cliches, I'm taking half a point <gasps> off. There are five sisters. The parents had died, I think, in a car accident. So the oldest sister, who it appears is probably maybe 15 years older than the youngest sister, she was a, a young adult at the time, so she took over raising of the sisters. It's kind of cliche, 
the cliche is the youngest sister is, of course, flaky, free spirit, blah, blah, blah. Which, see, I mean, see, that's it, funny because in our family, not that we have anybody who's a free spirit, but the youngest sister is definitely no, not. No, she's not. I mean, it works in the plot and everything. It's just that there's so, so many works of fiction. There's a family and there's one person in it that's always a flaky, blah, right. you know, and it's just like, okay, okay. Racial gender obtuses? No, there's one major character who is mixed ethnicity. The family, the Garvey family, all the women are white, but there's different people in it. Yeah. Lack of good visuals? No, there's a lot of very good visuals in it. If there's one thing, and and because I watched it on my phone, I'm not taking any points off, but I have found... I don't know if it's me, maybe I'm losing my eyesight, but I found a lot of shows, not just this one. Everything seems really dark. So maybe I'm getting, need to get those eye shots like mom gets. So it might be me. So I don't want to say anything. Missing pieces. No, it's a thriller mystery, not a mystery. It's a thriller kind of thing. Domestic suspense. Yeah. Domestic suspense. Thank you. You know, it's just like anything else. You've got to go with it till the end. You're a little confused sometimes, but everything is solved. You have to trust. I'll talk about it in storytelling. Inaccuracy, anachronisms, no. Well, it goes back and forth in time, but it's a six-month period. So Hmm. storytelling, I'm not taking any points off, and I didn't have any problem with it. But you have to pay attention, especially at the beginning. You have to pay attention that it's switching in time, that it says six months earlier. You know, six months, people aren't going to change that much, like as far as looks or age and stuff. And Does it have you, like any indicators? Yeah, it says time? six months earlier. Oh, okay. No, it has this device where it'll freeze the screen and bit small. So you know, you know right. when it's happened. But especially at the beginning and you have to figure out what the right. rhythm so- is. And freshness, I'm not going to take a point off. It's not not fresh. But it's not, it isn't super, a super novel idea. I mean, there's a lot. Well, you can say what the basic plot is. The basic thing is one of the sisters, she's married to a wicked asshole. They call him the prick. The other sisters, they don't like him. And he is. And at the beginning, I'm not giving away any spoilers because the first scene you see that he's dead. He's in a coffin. It's just that it seems like there's a lot of shows and stuff now where women are doing stuff and plotting with each other and stuff and Mm -hmm. being kind of bad. It's a little bit different. So I'll say it is fresh. I'm not taking any points off anyway, but it's a fresh take on it. Repetition, no. And beating the drum, no. So I will say the storytelling in many ways, this reminded me of Leanne Moriarty type of thing because of the family element and the going back in time and the fact that something has happened and you're not really sure until the end how it was resolved although it is more violent they don't really show the violence but they're more you know people dying or whatever than in her book the best things about it are the acting the woman that plays eva the oldest i saw her in that show catastrophe oh yeah with rob Um, delaney I didn't like the guy. I don't I, like I, him either, but that's, that's why a, I stopped watching it. Right. I couldn't, I could not watch a show with that guy. Yeah. I, that was the thing. I liked her a lot. I could not. So anyway, she is excellent. All of them are really good. The guy that plays the prick, he's such an asshole and he's so good at it. It's just really good. The acting's really good. Also the writing and the dynamic between the sisters is good. And like one thing I thought was kind of true to life is the youngest sister the four are kind of 
group together and she's she's a bit younger than the rest of them and of course they treat her like a baby all the time she's 29 but she doesn't see some of the things the older ones do like she Mm. doesn't think the guy's that bad like they're talking about their sister the one that's married to the asshole and they're like you know oh she's not herself her personality everything is you know it's like she's shriveling up or dying inside or something and the younger one's like no she's always been quiet like that and they're like no she has it and it reminds me of a conversation i had with about one of our siblings i know exactly what you're talking about was like who was a totally different person yeah i said he's totally in Oh, I right. didn't know him that well. And that's what she was like. She just sees things in a different way. Right. And she feels miss, left out. And she feels a lot like, of the history. And she feels like everyone thinks she's an idiot. Well, that's which a lot so of youngest do in yeah. a big family. Yeah, well, I'm remembering the Dan Brown argument. No. <laughs> Everybody is a fucking english major so anyways i highly recommend it okay Um, good i couldn't stop watching it without revealing anything would you say the ending was satisfying was satisfying and made sense okay good the only thing that bugged me it shouldn't have bugged me because the characters aren't lawyers and i don't know what the law is anyways in that country but they were worried about a legal thing and when you watch it i'll say but i was thinking that's a stupid thing to worry about although i will say when i rewatch it i'll have to do the bechdel test right you would assume that a show with five women would pass bechdel i don't think most of it does because the main focus is the prick right it's all about a guy Mm-hmm. And yep. that's not a criticism. It's funny now reading reviews of movies or TV shows or seeing ads on TV and stuff. I'm like, I can tell just by looking at that, it's not going to pass Bechdel. <laughs> I know. You know, and I'm trying to live a more Bechdel conscious life. I was thinking about it just when I was doing this and I was thinking, you know, I don't think it does. After I watch it and it will be after the new year, I don't want to spend 30 or whatever bucks it is on the stick thing. Because, you know, all my money is going to Christmas presents for my family. It's like a, it's like a Dickens story or something. Once I watch it, we can talk about it again and maybe you can rewatch it. Mom would probably like it. I'll probably watch it with her. Oh, I gave it nine and a half points. Yeah, that's. Everybody should watch it. I will watch it when I get my stick thing. And hopefully if you don't get, for some reason, can't watch it on Apple, hopefully it'll be available on some other streaming service. Yeah, I don't know how proprietary how long they keep their stuff before freeing it to the world but you can always as we've talked about or maybe we haven't but i know i've talked about this in my it's your money column that i write for my friend carol's manchester ink link what you want is like one like i have hulu live as a core one because i can watch local news and stuff like that and it's like 60 something bucks a month but then you you just rotate like i haven't i would only stream it's the i don't even understand it they have no well you could stream and just tell them it's cable and they wouldn't know but for people who aren't familiar with it like for instance hbo like i see things on there now i want to watch i haven't had it for maybe six months so i'll get rid of you know discovery plus or something else 
and get HBO and watch the stuff I want. But I wanted to say, speaking of Christmas presents, our Patreon listeners should be going to be getting something very special in the mail, hopefully before Christmas. Uh, We want to thank them for their yes, I hope you like for their loyalty and and we worked hard on them and popsicle stick birdhouses or no, they're not. (laughs) And if Liz, our sister's listening, you'll get yours. You'll get yours when you get here. Yeah. Well, on Christmas Eve, we'll give it to you like a regular present. So anyway, we should probably go. Thank you, everybody. Good night. Good night. I thought it was Friday. What? She thought it was Friday. It's not. It's Saturday. Now go to sleep. I mean, it's Thursday. It says it's being recorded. It is Uh, now for a whole fucking hour. We weren't, though. Uh, You know what really would have been awful? If we had done the whole fucking thing.